was this willingness to play the game any way that she could because she and these women were hell-bent that they were going to take the country in a different direction, and the only way to do it was to get a female elected president. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Tucson, Arizona today, and I'm joined in Washington by a new guest that I'm very pleased to welcome to the table, Helene Cooper, who is a Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. She is also the author of the newly released book, Madam President, The Extraordinary Journey of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, which I strongly recommend to everybody to go out and immediately buy. In fact, stop listening to the podcast, go to Amazon, order it, and then start listening to the podcast again. Not only is it a wonderful book, but Helene is one of my three favorite people in Washington, and I don't know who the other two are. So it's definitely something that's worthy of your attention. By the way, we've received some very, very sad pleas from you guys out there why you ER nerds need a mug so badly. We love them. We love your pain. Keep sending us these sad pleas. We'll send some of you mugs. Others, you will just have to continue to suffer and send more sad pleas. But this cycle of pain is what keeps us going strong here at the ER. Email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So, recently... From a tiny studio in sweltering Tucson, and from our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Hi, Helene. Hi, David. That was some introduction. Well, that's just the way we roll around here at the ER. Now, you know, we've, we've really, really made an effort earlier this year to try to have a whole podcast where we don't mention the President of the United States. And so far, we have failed. But I thought if we talk about your book and we talk about completely different set of issues, his name will never come up. And, you know, I just wanted you to know that's the challenge. Now, obviously, if you want to bring him up, go ahead. But I'm not even going to mention his name. I can totally keep my end of this bargain. I'm wondering about you. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. You wrote a a great book on your experience growing up in Liberia, coming to the United States and so forth. And now you've gone back and written this book about this uh, remarkable woman who took over the country and uh, was elected to to run the country. And, And what happened when hopes were high that a woman leader might lead the country in a different direction from the mess that men leaders had had made of it? What led you to write the book? Well, you did, remember? Uh, um, what, what David is not mentioning here is that he and I had lunch every month at the Palm because that was the only restaurant in Washington that he would eat at. Uh, oh and it was about, what, 10 years ago that you said that I should do a book about how all the countries that treated their women shabbily were the ones who were doing the worst uh, in development and they were the worst places to be. I can't – there's no way you don't remember this. Um, I, rem- I remember it. I remember it. And I was like, that's a great idea. And then I went home. I was like, no, that's going to be too depressing. I can't do this. And so I came schlepping back to you and said, actually, you know, my home country of Liberia just elected the first woman to be, you know, democratically elected president of an African country. I want to do that. Yeah. Well, I remember all of this. And uh, I do remember you thought that would be too depressing. So was it? I mean, 
Because uh, I mean, I've talked to you as you've been doing this yeah. book, and I have to say there have been some moments where you are not exactly when dancing I was, on the scene. Yeah, when I was ready to slit my wrist, especially yeah. after I had I had completed two drafts of the book and thought I was done, and then Ebola happened. That that wasn't a good day, um, as you will recall. But yeah, it was, no, I recall. But it, you were not <laughs> held responsible for that at all. No, it. but it was. You know, I mean, you've you've done this. Many, many times, you know how hard these books are to do and your ability to sort of complete your books in a finite amount of time is something I've always admired because I tend to, mine tend to drag on for a long period. It was definitely hard, not just the writing, but the figuring out how how to craft the, the story. The part that wasn't hard and that I found actually fun was the reporting, was spending the time in Liberia hanging out with these women. And the book is not only about Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. It definitely is a biography of her life, but it also is a story about the women who got her elected and the women's movement in Liberia. And I had an enormous amount of fun hanging out with these women and sort of finding out their own stories. Well, you know, one of the things I find interesting about Africa is that there are a couple of countries where the men made such a mess of things that there was really no alternative but to leave it to the women to pick up. Um, you know, R- Rwanda, I think, is the only country in the world that has uh, a legislature that's majority female at this point. And I know that in the early days of this, and as you were doing the book, there was this sense that maybe these women could come in and, and if not work a miracle, at least approach things in a in a in a materially different way. Now, having come to the end of the book, talk a little bit about what you found in that respect. Has it has it been markedly different? And if so, how? It has definitely in Liberia been markedly different. Uh, there's some things that are still the same, uh, and I'll do those first. Uh, Liberia, the Liberian government is still pretty corrupt. Corruption is sort of endemic in Liberia, and it's something that the previous governments were guilty of, and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's government is no less so. Nepotism remains an issue, and it goes all the way to the top of uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's government. She's been rightfully criticized uh, for appointing her sons to high offices, and she has sort of a blind spot when it comes to her sons that's that's really interesting and we can talk about, about later. On the other side of the ledger, and this is where she's been hugely different from her predecessors. First thing I would come up with is freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Um, in the past, political, you could not criticize the government. Uh, you certainly couldn't criticize Charles Taylor or Samuel Doe or William Talbert or William Tubman and and live to tell the tale. You would be thrown in jail. You would be executed at night. There's like uh, There was no real freedom of speech or freedom of the press. That's markedly improved uh, under Ellen Johnson's relief. And now, to the point that you turn on the radio in Liberia and you hear nothing but criticism of of the government and it's 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 loud and it's boisterous and it's noisy and it's pretty democratic. At the same time, I think we've seen in Liberia over the past 12 years an improvement in the lot of women there. You've seen she came into office and appointed several um, many more women to high offices uh, than have been in the past, but it's not just in the cabinet. It's also, you see many women who are mayors of cities and superintendents of counties, you know, and important counties in Liberia. And you see, and it goes all the way down, that you see this realization among 
the market women, and those were her economic base, and those were women who, in the past, they lived through the war years and the horrible civil war and all of the—with all of the horrors that that brought with them— and they still continued throughout all of that, making their markets, selling their wares, and driving what little economy that existed in the country. And what they actually did in electing Ellen Johnson's relief president was to turn that economic power into political power. And so you see among these women now this realization that they have much more power than anybody gave them credit for in the past. That's, that's a good thing to see, at least for me. We really should have put this into our all-women's issue of FP Magazine, shouldn't we? I'm not even going to touch that. I will, I will jump through this, this wire and strangle you. Um, something that many of our listeners would no doubt enjoy. Um, but I'm so glad that our, our, we're, we're commemorating the launch of our all-women's women's issue with these two podcasts about your book, which means we're really giving it sort of central focus. Thank you, David. People invest more time per podcast than with, with you know than with any other FP product. So hmm. this is this is really where it's happening. This is the core of the action for FP. Uh, and frankly, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but the 75,000 or so listeners of this podcast uh, at the moment are among the most, some of the most deeply afflicted ER nerds in the world. I mean, foreign policy nerds in the world. Uh-huh. And so they really care about this stuff in a way that most people probably don't. That's pretty cool to hear. And they like these mugs. What's the deal with the mug? I want a mug. Everybody wants a mug. Well, before you leave, you'll get to choose. You, you might want the one that says, you know, I, you're absolutely right, David. That's a very popular mug. <laughs> Is there really enough? You're absolutely, I want the yes. you're absolutely right, David mug. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. the other one that, that you might like is the one that says Undersecretary of Snark. <laughs> <laughs> Which Don't wrote, be careful now. Remember, I knew you all the way back. Big emerging yeah, markets when, at the Commerce yeah, Department. Yeah, exactly. Before, well, no, we promise not to mention that. You know, part of the reason the story, part of the reason the book is so compelling, like your last book is so compelling, is it's not just great journalism. It's not just great writing. And it's not just a story that's about an important sort of microcosm of change in the world that we really need to study and understand. But it's also your own personal experience and your story of coming out of a country that was ravaged by these these past governments and wars and so forth. And as you were reporting this book, you clearly encountered your own family and came face to face periodically with your own past. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was um, it, it was it was weird. I I love being. Let me back up a second. Liberia, as you know, was founded by freed American blacks and freed American slaves in 1822, and they were very. My ancestor, my great 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 grandfather Elijah Johnson, was on the first ship that sailed from New York Harbor in 1821 to the west coast of Africa. Now. These colonists were very brave and courageous, but at the same time, they were as twisted as everybody else. They went back to Africa and set up the same kind of antebellum society that they had fled from in the American South, except they were the ones now lording it over everybody else. And the rest of the Liberian population made up the servant class and the working class. And this two-tiered system existed for 150 years. That's what I was born into until 1980, when a group of enlisted soldiers stormed the executive mansion. They killed the president. They executed his cabinet by firing squad on the beach, and they took over. My family ran away at that point. But what's 
interesting about the connection is that Alan Johnson Sirleaf, who my book is about, was the minister of finance at the time of this 1980 coup. My cousin Cecil Dennis was the minister of foreign affairs. He was killed with uh, with 12 other men on the beach by firing squad. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was not even though she was Minister of Finance. And there are two reasons for that. One is because, and you and I, I remember you and I talking about this again at the Palm because everybody, you guys need to know that used to be the only place that David would eat. Okay, this, you know, if you believe this stuff, (laughs) fake news, Um, that's all I can say, fake news. (laughs) But the one reason why was because she was a woman and women were to be raped. They were not to be killed. And the other reason was because she had criticized the government, the same government that she was part of, and she is so of inoculated herself with some fiery speeches that she had made complaining about the old guard. So she was viewed a little bit as a sort of a radical within that uh, administration. So she survives and the rest of her colleagues are mostly all mostly killed. And it's a really strange juxtaposition because it, it shows that she was already developing something that would carry her through her career, which is this uncanny ability to sort of survive all of of these different regimes, one you know, one way or the other. She's she knows how to switch her political allegiances. She knows how to make compromises, and she gets a lot of criticism for that. And some of that, I some of that I think is justified, but it's also partly why she survived so long. So she ends up going to work for the uh, Doe regime, but she only lasts about six months, and then she walks out because she can't deal with them. They're completely inept. They're immediately corrupt. It's the whole, you know, it's just a different, you're just exchanging one uh, despotic regime for another one, and she leaves. And the country sort of then begins its sort of plunge into this economic abyss that took literally 23 years of bad management, of dictatorship, and of civil war to come out of. You know, when I hear stories about this, you know, I, th- I, th- I think of her, I, I think I've met her a couple of times. She's very impressive. I think she went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. She's really she, reserved, though. Did you find that? Yeah. She's I mean, not I, like I, Miss, like, effervescent or even, you know how some politicians are, they walk into a room and immediately take over and they're shaking every. She does that, but she does it in a much more, like, reserved way where I always feel around her as if, you know, I, I, I end up saying stupid things. <laughs> I can't believe that's true, but but you know, the, 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 you know, you think about it. We used to talk about Angela Merkel, or you talk about Michelle Bachelet in in uh, mm-hmm. in Chile, or you talked about Hillary Clinton. You could say the same thing about all of them. You know that that, that they're yeah. not yeah. hail fellow well met, but by the same token, you know they're very very solid policy steeped people. But what what what's interesting to me is you know so, sometimes I see well this uh, Ellen Johnson certainly she's appeals to American elites that you know are interested in Africa because she speaks their language went to Harvard you know dealt with uh, multilateral institutions as a as a finance minister and so forth. she's kind of more of a, you know a sort of global elite and less sort of uniquely African and so we can tolerate her. But clearly the solutions that she's come up with and the way she's dealt with leadership, as you talk about them in your book, are 
African, they're Liberian, yeah, they're, yeah. In, in, you know, they're, they're grounded in a different kind of culture. And I'm just, I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, if you could. That's a great, that's a great issue, because she certainly is bilingual. Um, she, you know, she worked for the IMF, the World Bank, the UN. Uh, she can hang with you in talking about multilateralism and the Paris Club and all that, you know, other stuff that normal people don't talk about. And she's very assured in that world. She's a global bureaucratic technocrat. But amazingly, uh, she can do that at the same time that when she's in Liberia, she can play the African politics and dirty politics game. You know, she can move in both worlds. I've seen her uh, where she turns on the American accent and can, you know, and can sit and have an interview with the BBC where she discussed Bretton Woods and this and that and then turn around and switch back to Liberian English and, and get really down and gritty with a village. Uh, chieftain and, you know, telling him about why all the girls are up there in the bushes being female, being circumcised. She can go back and forth. And what's really interesting about this, I was at one point interviewing her. This was during, for the course of the book, and we were talking about 2003 when Charles Taylor had just been run out of town, run out of Liberia by the international community. And there was, there were peace talks going on in Accra. And there were, there was all these maneuverings going on to set up an interim government that would be uh, would run the country for two years as the country prepared for formal elections in 2005. Now, whoever won the presidency of the interim government would not be able to run for president in 2005, which is why I never understood why she tossed her hat into the ring for that two-year stint. But she did, and she was there competing with a bunch of different warlords from all these different factions that had fought in the war at these peace talks. And she won the vote. But as soon as she won the vote, the the rest of the guys where there were men declared an electoral college and said, <laughs> said that you don't win by popular vote, that you actually win the first three people, uh, top vote getters would then be submitted to an electoral college and they would decide who would be the winner. Careful, careful. Yeah. You're getting very close. You started it. You started talking about Hillary, dude. Um, yeah. So then it's like they're all like, you know, maneuvering at night. And she bribed one of the warlords $10,000 to get people to vote for her. And she just told me that. You know, we're sitting there interviewing and I'm like writing and thinking, you know, as a reporter, when somebody is telling you something that you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just told me that. And you want them to keep talking. So I didn't like interrupt and say, what? What do you mean you bribed him? You know, I'm you know, I'm sort of stealthily writing everything down as she talks about it. And then afterwards we went back and I'm like, why did you? And she just looked at me like that's how the game is played. You know, everybody else was bribing. And it's this this sort of ability to go in and out. And one minute she can, you know, she can stand up and talk about how we need to fight corruption. And the next minute she can freely admit that, you know, she did this and it didn't work. The guy came and gave her her money back and said nobody, they wouldn't, the guys wouldn't agree to vote for her. Or for instance, when you look at how some of her female supporters during when she did the 2005 elections came around and how they, you know, some of the things they did that she condoned to get uh, to get elected. And it's it's really interesting. You had you have women who were stealing their son's voter I.D. cards, women out there who were bribe, not bribing guys with cold beers to give them their voter I.D. cards. So she couldn't uh, so that they wouldn't be able to vote for the football player who was running against Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, George Weah at the time. And it was I mean, and she talked about this. 
this. She's the one who first told me about it. You know, I didn't when I started working on the book, I had no idea that the women who voted for her had done any of this stuff. And she baldly told me and there's no shame whatsoever. It's this willingness to play the game any way that she could because she and these women were hell-bent that they were going to take the country in a different direction. And the only way to do it was to get a female elected president. So how's that turned out? I think it's turned out okay. It's not turned out. It's certainly not. Liberia is not Sweden uh, yet. (laughs) We're not even Ghana yet. But we're certainly not the basket case that we were in 2005. In 2005, the country had not had electricity in 15 years. Uh, We finally have that back now. Uh, And running water in the cities and it's spreading more upcountry. We have uh, the economy came back in a big way until it got knocked back by Ebola. But even, you know, the old Liberia could never have come out of the Ebola epidemic as quickly as it did. And Liberia was hit harder than Guinea or Sierra Leone by Ebola and yet came out of it uh, faster than either of those two. And that's a lot of that is because of sort of the freedom of speech and freedom of movement and the policies that Ellen Johnson's relief uh, put in place. So it's a mixed bag. It's certainly not, you know, we're as I said, we're not Ghana, but we're nowhere near the sort of basket case that we used to be. And beyond that, now we're at the end of Ellen Johnson's surleaf term in uh, this year. Uh, and she's stepping down. She's had two terms in office, and we're going to have elections in October and November. And this is going to be the first time in the history of Liberia that we have a president who voluntarily just leaves at the end of their term without trying to extend it. Usually they don't leave until you put a bullet in their head or you take them to the International War Crimes Tribunal or, you know, or kill them. Uh, So the idea that we're actually going to have a post-president who voluntarily left is something that we don't even know what to deal with in Liberia. It's it's unheard of. You think that the changes that she's brought in will work? You know, another scenario would be that she'll be a post-president and whoever gets elected will see her as a threat and that that might not end well. So do you think the cultural changes that she sought to bring about to Liberian po- political culture are actually taking root enough for the, the, the country to be able to tolerate a post-president. I think so. Uh, and the reason why I think so is because Liberians have become very used to being able to say what they think without getting hit by that. And I think they're not going to be very willing to go back to the to the way it was in the past. At least that's sort of my hope. Uh, we'll, uh, we're going to see. But I think it also depends on who wins the um, who wins the election. There are a whole cast of characters. A lot of them, um, the same men who ran in 2005 and 2011, uh, who she beat, um, are running are running again. And we'll see we'll see how that turns out. You know, Readers never really get the drama behind writing books, and frankly, it's probably just as well. That's probably just as well. It's kind of pathetic, you know, (laughs) the authors complaining about this and that along the way. But I do recall, as you were going through the process of writing this book, we met once for lunch, not Gee, where was it, David? No, it was not. It was at Cafe DuPont. (laughs) To be honest, I'm with not you. even going to say anything about the fact that that after the palm shut down, that you moved to Cafe Dupont. Uh, like, talk yeah. about a Johnny One Note. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, really boring. Um, but you don't have to tell the listeners to this podcast that I'm boring. They know. In any event, we were sitting there talking about it, and the Ebola crisis had just sort of happened, and you were kind of 
like, oh my God, I have to redo the book. It was because I'm so selfish. You write my country's hit by Ebola, and all I care about is what does this mean for my book. I don't believe that was your only view. It may have been your your pr- predominant reaction, but but I think there was some compassion in there too. But but talk about the Ebola crisis in terms of a test for her and a test for the country uh, in a little more detail. It was a huge test for both Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and the country. And, you know, there were initial, there were big missteps on both sides uh, initially. Uh, Liberia and Ellen went through this denial phase at the beginning. She, first of all, was so worried that because she spent all these years as a development expert wooing all these foreign countries to invest in Liberia. And she was very proud of the fact that you had British Air and Air France and Delta and, you know, joining Brussels Airways and Kenya Airways and flying to Liberia. And you had foreign countries bringing in money, foreign companies bringing in money. And she was terrified that the second you acknowledge uh, Ebola, that Ebola is there, people would turn around and flee. So she didn't react as quickly and as loudly as she should have. Uh, Liberians as well went through an initial phase of denial where they were, you know, convinced that the government, even though the government was making some pronouncements and announcements that, you know, there were Ebola cases, uh, was making the whole thing up to try to get. And there, she actually even was accused by opposition members that she was making up uh, Ebola, the Ebola epidemic in order to get more foreign investment. It was this weird sort of like nobody in the country wanted to acknowledge uh, or few people wanted to acknowledge that they, this catastrophe was seeping uh, around the seeping through the country. It took months. But and what's really interesting about it that it wasn't until Ebola hit white people in Liberia with Ken Brantley and Nancy Reitbull and these uh, Samaritan's Purse uh, doctors and nurse, doctor and nurse who were working in Liberia. And it became a global global headline-grabbing news that even within Liberia, people started to really react swiftly and take control. So that's the bad side of the Ebola story. The good side, though, is that once they did, it really was— Liberians themselves that picked the country back up and got it going again and kicked the disease. You know, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf famously wrote this letter to Barack Obama asking for help and saying, you know, Liberia is, you know, was founded by American slaves and the French are going to help the Guineans and the Brits are going to help the Sierra Leones. We need, you know, we expect you to help help Liberia. And he responded with 3,000 troops to go and build 17 Ebola treatment units all over the country, 1,700 beds. It was a huge response that I think only she could have gotten. But at the same time, it wasn't a question of waiting, sitting back and waiting for the world to save Liberia. Liberians themselves did it. They instructed, I arrived there in September during the Ebola epidemic and everybody, the whole washing hands and everybody had a Clorox bucket outside of their house or, you know, where you wouldn't go, go inside any house or office or supermarket or anything without washing your hands. People had stopped touching each other, which is a huge deal in Liberia because we, we're a very tactile society. But, you know, nobody, but it's that's the sort of thing that's sort of impossible to do 100% because you 
you can't. It's hard to not touch your uh, a relative or a loved one. And people tried to do that, and they were able to, in many ways, do that. But that's why you saw the people who were coming down with Ebola were mostly healthcare workers who were taking care of the sick, or people whose relatives got sick and they took care of them. And that's uh, and and again, though, in that way, it's sort of. I think showed a resilience among Liberians that I was proud to to see uh, from my my country men and and women the fact that even with all with this horrible disease going on in the country they were still willing to take care of loved ones I mean they put on gloves and they did you know they they washed their hands but they took care of them and that was a it, it made me proud uh, proud to be Liberian and I was really proud to see Liberia came came out of it before either Sierra Leone or Guinea even though it was hit far harder than any of the, those two countries because Ebola got into Monrovia, an urban setting, for the first time ever. You know, I have this strong impulse here to speculate about what would happen in a crisis like that if a leader like that had to send a letter like that to the current United States president. I knew and, you couldn't and, do it. And, it and doesn't yet, count, David, if you talk about him, it doesn't say his name, okay? You totally, like, lost this bet or whatever it was that we were doing. Well— you know, I the impulse is so strong that I think there's really only one thing I can do, and that's say we've come to the end of the first half of this interview. And it's so lame. It's so lame. <laughs> I know. And all of all all of our little ER nerds who are listening to this while working out on their treadmill, going, "What? That was only thirty minutes." I. I, you know, I was going to work out for 40. Actually, they don't. They work out for five minutes and then they sit and they drink coconut water for 25 minutes. I don't even minutes. work out for five minutes, so they've got something on me. Well, Dude, that's, you totally know, now that you're part me. of the ER family, <laughs> we'll give you a mug. <laughs> you work out for five minutes a day and then drink coconut water and uh, speculate about world affairs. Anyway, folks, as I've just hinted, we're going to continue this conversation in the next episode of the ER, which you'll hear in just a couple of days. Uh, or if you're downloading these back to back, you may just hear them in a couple of seconds. But for now, let me thank Colleen for the first part of this. Let me recommend you again to Madam President, The Extraordinary Journey of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, which is Helene's latest great book. Although if you haven't read her prior works, you should. So go buy that. And, uh, you know, that'll give you something to do between now and when we do the next episode. Thank you, Helene. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.